the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeedy, and he's here to say good afternoon. Great to have the electricity on <laughs> and uh, an opportunity to be with you here on the Tuesday edition of Lifeline. We apologize profusely to Pastor Jessica Stand. Um, I kind of got sloppy and kicked the plug out of the wall yesterday. <laughs> now we had another one of our little PG&E whoopsies. Or how does it go again? Thank you. And so, uh, therefore, for many of you that have called and sent emails saying, what was going on yesterday? That's, uh, that's the deal. But brought the big monstrous generator in and all is, all is well now in the world of radio. And great to have you with us for a special edition of Lifeline. We, of course, today, on a more solemn note, mark the anniversary of September the 11th and the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. We will have a special tribute to not only the lives that were lost, but also the heroes of 9-11 coming up later on in tonight's program about 5.30. But I want to start first with the story. And this will be one that I think you'll initially hear and say, what? Wait a minute. Is this out of the onion, Craig? Are you making this up? Listen to this. Two students were arrested by campus police for passing out hate literature on Michigan College campus, right? Campus of Michigan College. Passing out hate literature. You think, well, you know, these crazy KKK people or neo-Nazis or whatever. No, 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 no. Wait till you hear what exactly was deemed to be hate literature. Try copies of the United States Constitution. I think I'm making this up. Um, more recently in the news is the fact that now the College is writing a big check, $55,000, to settle a lawsuit for violation of First Amendment rights. And I guess to a degree this should not come as any real shock or surprise to any of us. There has been a slow, steady shift taking place on college and university campuses across the country for, my goodness, we're probably into the second generation worth now. And much of the madness that you see going on today in the media, society, entertainment, and yes, even politics, is the byproduct of so much of this major paradigm shift on college campuses. And it's not just at the student level, but even at the educators level. We're going to dive a bit deeper into this. We'll talk about a book called Not a Daycare. It's like, why does that vaguely... Why does that vaguely ring a bell? Ring a bell? Well, because uh, before it was a book, it was a open letter to students on the campus of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, penned by our first guest tonight. He is the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. He authored the essay, 
that went viral a couple of three years ago now. And now there's a book by the same title that goes deeper into this topic and taking a look at what's happening, the homes of higher education across the nation and its incredible impact on our country. We visit today with Dr. Everett Piper. Dr. Piper, great to have you back on the program again. Thank you so much. I'm honored to join you. We uh, we spoke, in fact, uh, not long after that first uh, essay that you wrote and the note that went out to students across your campus that um, dealt with a complaint that you received from a staff member, as I recall, that a student had approached the staff member who coincidentally had spoken at chapel service that morning, and the student went on to say that they had to file a complaint, that they had been victimized by the topic of the sermon delivered by your staff member, that it was very troubling, very upsetting, that they uh, had been deeply impacted by all of this, and that they, they just simply felt victimized at multiple levels. And of course, to much of the irony and astonishment of many, when you might think, well, boy, what terrible things were said from uh, that chapel service that would so um, traumatize a student. And in fact, it was a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13. And of course, the response that you wrote to that student's response not only went viral, but ultimately has wound up in a book where you really sort of break down this trend that has been taking place on university and college campuses all across the nation. Exactly. And just to tie a bow around the anecdote that you just described, it's true. It was a couple of years ago. We have required chapel at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. We're still boldly and unapologetically Christian. We're conservative. We stand for a biblical worldview. The students know that. You can't come to Oklahoma Wesleyan University without knowing we stand for the four pillars of our mission statement, the primacy of Christ, the priority of Scripture, the pursuit of truth, and the practice of wisdom. But yet, in spite of that, when I had my vice president give a homily, a sermon, on 1 Corinthians 13, we actually had one of our students come forward and confront him and say he was offended, singled out, and felt somehow marginalized by that sermon. I was incredulous. Uh, You've got to be kidding me. We have a sermon on love, and this student says he's offended because we made him feel guilty for not feeling loving enough. So I wrote the letter, and I basically said, that feeling that you had, it's called your conscience. You might want to attend to it. And if you expect us to coddle you rather than confront you, if you expect us to make you feel comfortable rather than to challenge your character, go someplace else. This is not a daycare. It's a university. And yes, this book that I've written is a book that confronts the whole snowflake rebellion, this selfishness, this narcissism that is rampant in our culture where we think it's all about us, that everything that offends us needs to be set aside because we have the right to be comfortable rather than maybe the obligation to develop our character when we're put in adverse circumstances. And, of course, we're seeing examples of this all across the country. Um, A dear friend for many years, David Horowitz, from Page Magazine. Many people know that David's parents were very involved in the uh, American communist movement back in the 1950s, and uh, he made the slow, steady march from the insanity of communism to the bravery of conservatism many years ago. Uh, He's been a guest on this show many, many times. He, along with the likes of Ann Coulter, Ben Shapiro, and others, have been repeatedly marginalized, if not completely shut out from college campuses and universities. And, of course, most ironically, 
Dr. Piper, right here in the San Francisco Bay Area, in what was considered to be the bastion of the free speech movement in the 1960s, University of California, Berkeley campus, where literally they refused to allow these people to even come on campus to share alternative ideas or to engage in debate. And I guess what I find surprising, maybe I'm just an old fossil, with old-fashioned thinking, but it seemed to me that the one place where we would want to encourage the open exchange of ideas, the give and take, the, as Scripture would say, the iron sharpening iron, going back and forth and wrestling through questions and issues and differences and opinions, ought to be on college campuses and universities. And yet, seemingly, there is this steady, long march into the abyss that says, oh, no, somebody might say something that offends my sensibilities and might somehow damage my poor little psyche that needs to be coddled at every level. I mean, is it really true that we're we're raising now nearly a second generation of children that are literally afraid of their own shadows? Yes, it's true. Wow. Um, A couple quotes from C.S. Lewis to respond to your uh, Berkeley anecdote. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia told the children, he used the character of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, to tell the children that Aslan is not safe, but he's good. Well, let's paraphrase that. The great line, Aslan is not safe, but he is good. Well, the great line of the liberal arts, the great line of the academy, the great lion of the ivory tower, the great lion of the college and university is not supposed to be safe, but it's supposed to be good. There's a huge difference between safety and goodness, and we've lost the ability within our culture and within the academy to know the difference and to understand the distinction. The other issue in play here is what you described at Cal Berkeley is spot on, and it's ideological fascism rather than the academic freedom that they claim to champion. They believe that a conservative Jew like Dennis Prager or um, or Horowitz or Ben Shapiro should be silenced and verboten and expelled from their campus simply because they're expressing ideas that make the traditional, or excuse me, their academy feel uncomfortable, their kids feel uncomfortable. This is the irony of what's taking place in the academy. It's fascism. You must comply. You must agree. You must look like us. You must believe like us. Otherwise, we will expel you and we will silence you. In fact, I wrote an op-ed about the Berkeley scenario where they refused to allow Ben Shapiro to speak, and I said, I've got news for you. Freedom of speech and academic liberty was not born in Cal Berkeley. It was born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago because it's Jesus that said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And you all at Berkeley have proven you don't believe in intellectual freedom, that you're actually ideological fascists because if people don't agree, you will silence them. And of course, to to bring this full circle into the height and attention of every evangelical listening to this conversation today with Dr. Everett Piper, uh, realize if this is allowed to go on um, uncontrolled, uh, unreined in, that it will wind up to the nth degree, essentially uh, bringing about the demise of everything that not only Scripture stands for, but we as the church stand for. I mean, just imagine taking this to the religious and yet most logical conclusion that if suddenly somebody can stand up and say, I feel victimized, because what they're really trying to say is they feel convicted by something that they have heard. Imagine what would happen to every single sermon preached from every pulpit 
out of every Bible by every pastor in America today if suddenly we had to create safe spaces? What do we do? Set up a separate room in the back of the church where if suddenly you start to feel a little bit uncomfortable in your own skin, you have a place to run to where you can hide from the truth? The irony is there used to be debates about uh, you know, how do we find the, the road to the truth? Today, it seems as if we have come to the conclusion, at least on many university and college campuses, that there is no truth. I mean, after all, if you can have your own truth and I can have mine, then at the end of the day, is there any really truth at all? We're going to explore that question and talk about what is, and I choose my words wisely here, not an accidental consequence of all of this, but in fact, what I believe to be a very intentional effort that has led to where we are today. And the initial incubation of this idea goes all the way back to Nazi Germany in the 1920s and 30s. We'll talk about that and more today. The president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, Dr. Everett Piper, a look at his new book. It's a page-turner, and it will open your eyes. Not a daycare, the devastating consequences of abandoning truth. Back with more in our conversation with Dr. Piper right after this. Right now, though, a quick conversation with Michael Bennett. He's got a look at your Tuesday ride to wherever. What's going on out there, Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I would conclude that probably sometime uh, post-World War II, uh, there began a a, a slow, steady realization that uh, really picked up speed into the 1950s and early 1960s, Uh, this largely at the behest of progressives. And, you know, there's probably a a subcategory list here of socialists and communists and others, but we'll we'll call them progressives or the extreme left for the moment, that began to realize that they weren't making many strides. They weren't getting um, too much advancement within the halls of politics or economic power, maybe not so on Wall Street nor on Main Street, but they decided that the one place where they could get a toehold was the educational system. And ironically, It was Adolf Hitler in the 1920s who opined, he alone who owns the youth gains the future. And Dr. Everett Piper, who is the author of this new book, Not a Daycare, the Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth, newly published, by the way, by Regnery Faith and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon. Dot com. It would seem to me, Dr. Piper, that, that largely what has transpired here, as I suggest, is that they found the path of least resistance that's also the pathway that has the greatest impact. And that is, if, as Hitler said, you can own the youth you can, and their minds, you can own the future. And Hitler also said, let me control the classroom and I will control the state. And uh, even Abraham Lincoln said, what happens today in the classroom will be practiced tomorrow in our culture. And it's just common sense. We know this. Your grandmother told you, garbage in, garbage out, that ideas have consequences. And if you imbibe good ideas, you've got good culture. If you imbibe bad ideas, you've got bad culture, bad community, bad church, and bad kids. In fact, Richard Weaver, who wrote in the 1940s, shortly after World War II, wrote this book, Ideas Have Consequences. And what was his point? Ideas have consequences. They always bear fruit. Weaver was looking backward just a handful of years to his culture, the German culture, and he was saying, we should have seen this coming. 
when we started imbibing these terrible ideas, there was only one inevitable consequence, and that consequence was going to be terrible. What happens in the classroom will be practiced in our culture. And when you see self-absorption and narcissism taught day in and day out in our culture, when you see moral nihilism and sexual relativity, and when you see license rather than moral responsibility being taught to our kids as young as elementary school, why are we surprised to see the consequences bear themselves out? When you see the lecherous behavior of Hollywood stars and talking heads in the, in the news, why are you surprised to see a lecture behaving accordingly when you've taught lechery to the schools in our public school systems? Again, I could go on and on of the consequences of bad ideas. Um, there's another uh, quote from a good German, and that is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, not to speak is to speak, and not to act is to act. Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. We have the obligation in our time and our place as leaders to speak into culture for the good. And if we are silent in the face of this evil, this narcissism, this self-absorption, if we're silent in the face of it, we are the ones that are going to be held guilty for not doing our job to be salt and light in a culture that desperately needs us. Well, and not only that, but the failure to to build strong citizens, um, strong people that can contribute to society, can contribute to uh, the church. Uh, ultimately, not only is there a failure there, but also we're creating an entire generation of, of young people that are so used to being coddled intellectually and emotionally that their ability to be able to stand up against any sort of an attack or a force that would seek to destroy them is virtually non-existent. I, I was bemused to read in your book, Not a Daycare, a story that you share about students at Oberlin College who not only <laughs> wanted to be paid so they could engage in their time of political protest by the college, but then demanded... Imagine this, demanded less stressful alternatives to written midterm exams. Now, I think if certainly my generation had recommended that to any uh, university professor that I had, uh, we would have been thrown out on our ears. Well, and it, it doesn't stop there. We actually have scenarios from Brown to Berkeley where students are asking for counseling centers with Play-Doh, coloring books, <laughs> bubbles, and videos of frolicking puppies, and they're getting it. Those are the types of counseling centers that are being provi provided to adults, college students. Yet the University of Maine this last year, not two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, but just this last finals season during the spring semester, they actually brought in goats so that the students could pet the goats during finals to help alleviate their stress while they took their exams. Yeah, that's tied into this growing trend towards so-called emotional support animals that you're seeing showing up virtually everywhere that people can't even leave the house to go grocery shopping without Fido coming along. Let me ask you this as our time winds down today, Dr. Piper, and I want to encourage listeners, go out and get a copy of this book. Uh, it, it is an eye-opener, and it is one of those clarion calls that I think we as the church in particular need to be responding to. And there are so many layers here that involve Dr. Piper response not only at a community level, educational level, political level, but most importantly for the church, at a spiritual level. Your university, as we suggested earlier, is one of the few remaining that still stands on the strong principles that ex absolute truth does exist, and it is found in Scripture. But I have to wonder, we've seen uh, such a weakening of the church 
today, and you refer to this in one uh, chapter in the book, uh, as questioning whether or not the church was engaged in apologies or apologia. What do we need to be doing as the body of believers, as evangelical Christians, to help move this thing back to where it's, it's, it's at least some semblance of, of reality again, as opposed to this craziness that we're seeing? Well, the first thing I would suggest is stop sending your kids off to these schools that teach this problem. Good point. Why do you spend 18 years of your life training up your child in the way he should go so that when he's old, he will not depart, and then you truck him off to some university and you drop 35, 45 grand on the barrelhead to turn him over to a group of faculty who take great pride in the first 18 minutes while you're driving away from campus and tearing the kid's heart, mind, and soul out. And this is not hypothetical. I am not exaggerating it. In fact, Richard Rorty who was a philosopher at um, several Ivy League institutions, as well as University of Chicago, once said, parents, we are going to go right on making your ideas seem silly and undesirable in the minds of your students. But yet we pay for that. So the first thing that you should do is recognize that the school you send your kid to is going to make a difference, and we should stop sending our kids to schools that do not support a biblical ethic, a Judeo-Christian uh, worldview and that are going to work against us rather than for us in terms of supporting our kids' morality and ethic. And I guess we really have to do our homework in that regard, Dr. Piper, because uh, there are many of these schools, and I've seen them myself, that like to stand on uh, history and stand on the list of their graduates, and we look at that and say, well, wow, boy, they've been around since the 1800s. This place must be good, not recognizing the fact that it's no longer anywhere near, I think of Harvard Divinity School is a good example of this, not anywhere near the institution that it might have been a century ago. Absolutely. You need to ask some very clear questions. I, I recommend that parents ask two basic questions. Pull the president aside. If he won't meet with you, then don't send your kid there. If he doesn't care enough about you to give, him, give you a 10 minutes of his time, there's a problem. Pull the president aside and ask him two simple questions. What's your view of truth and what's your view of Scripture? And be quiet and listen. If truth is an objective fact, if it's a revelation rather than a postmodern construct, if truth is real, that's something you pursue and something you obtain, good answer. If he doesn't say that, lousy answer. Don't pay for that. You don't want your kid to get a degree in opinions. You want him to get a degree in something that's right and just and true and real. And what's your view of Scripture? Is it inerrant? Is it infallible? Is it the Word of God? Or is it just an interesting book of literature that can be subject to the ebb and flow of culture and time? Is it a fluid document? Or is it a stagnant, objective document that does not change, is immutable and time-tested, and is actually true yesterday, today, and tomorrow? Those two questions will tell you whether or not you should send your kid to that school. Dr. Piper, we sure appreciate your time. You are one of the uh, the great lighthouses for uh, truth and education today, and we appreciate not only uh, your effort in penning this book, which is an eye-opener to be sure for every parent, every Christian, every taxpayer in our country today that loves this country and does believe in objective truth, uh, but, uh, but also, I think, an important um, manual here to get us started in recapturing uh, what was the greatness of this country spiritually and move us back in the right direction. Not a daycare. The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth, the new book published by Regnery Faith, which is, of course, owned by the same folks that own this fine radio station, and its author has been our guest on this segment of Lifeline, the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, Dr. Everett Piper, real hero today. Pick up a copy of his book real soon, would you? 
531 on the clock. We're going to swing back over to the KFAX Traffic Center or Sachet or walk slowly with a nimble limp, as the case may be, eventually finding ourselves in the KFAX Traffic Center where Michael Bennett's got the latest on your Tuesday ride home. Michael? The following is a special presentation of AM 1100 KFAX. It was the morning of September the 11th. The sky was unusually clear and the weather pleasantly warm that Tuesday morning. It was the first full week back at work following summer vacation and the long Labor Day weekend. For New Yorkers, the day began, as most days begin in the Big Apple, up early, kiss the kids goodbye, maybe grab a cup of joe or the Wall Street Journal at the corner market, then off to catch the subway. And if you were one of the 50,000 who worked at zip code 10048, the World Trade Center, you struggled to push your way through the crowded subway platform to make it to your office on time at World Trade Center 2. When you arrived at your office on the 86th floor at 8.35 a.m., you sat down and looked out the window to marvel at the incredible view across to Tower 1 and then glanced down at a picture of your family on your desk. Little did you realize when you left home that fateful Tuesday morning that for you and nearly 3,000 of your co-workers, the prestige of working at the famed World Trade Center would suddenly, and with no warning, turn into a towering inferno of death and unprecedented destruction. We have something that has happened here at the World Trade Center. I saw it come just looking like it's sideways. At first we thought it was just going to try to miss it. Bang! Right into the middle of it. It's as if you drew the outline of a single-engine airplane onto the building. But there are at least some windows. This is not an accident. This is beyond the pale of understanding. There are thousands and thousands of people fighting for their lives right now. Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. The roof has collapsed. There is a chasm in the side of the Pentagon that is probably 200 or 300 feet across. There was a tremendous explosion that rocked my car and the cars around us. All that we know right now is that two airplanes struck the two large towers of the World Trade Center. We spoke to the White House. There also apparently was an attack on the Pentagon. All elevators are out in both towers, according to the rescue workers on the scene. They put out an urgent call for Scott Air Packs uh, because they're climbing smoke-filled stairwells. The plane has just completely collapsed. The whole side has collapsed? The whole building has collapsed. All firefighters and officers should report to duty. You are needed. This is the nightmare that we have been warned about for years. The FAA has shut down the airs over America. If there's a plane up right now, it will be targeted by military, uh, Air Force, and F-14s. Oh, there it goes. 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 The second one just went... Both World Trade Centers have been destroyed. Now, a moment of pause for us all to consider the lives in these buildings and the family members that are that are waiting to find out uh, how far this damage has gone. Law enforcement has taken a huge hit as people who rushed to the scene. The building would have been full of firefighters and emergency rescue people and police when it collapsed. And I'm just going to add to the chaos and the trauma of the day by saying that a large plane 
has now crashed uh, about 80 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. The thousands and thousands of deaths that will have been caused by this. It is not a question of a score or 100 or 200, but thousands and thousands of people are dead. Please pray if you are a praying person. This conflict was begun on the timing and terms of others. It will end in a way and at an hour of our choosing. The spirit of this nation will not be defeated by their twisted and diabolical schemes. To those who say that our city will never be the same, I say you are right. It will be better. America. Whether we bring our enemies to justice or bring justice to our enemies, Justice will be done. I have a message for our military. Be ready. As long as the United States of America is determined and strong, this will not be an age of terror. This will be an age of liberty here and across the world. The course of this conflict is not known, yet its outcome is certain. Freedom and fear justice and cruelty have always been at war and we know that God is not neutral between them every nation in every region now has a decision to make either you are with us or you are with the terrorists we will not tire we will not falter and we will not fail welcome to 10048 after the Fall, a celebration of hope, a Lifeline special report. I'm Craig Roberts. And I'm P.J. Oliver. We'll pause to remember and pay tribute to the lives that were lost on that morning in September 2001. Not since the December 1941 bombing of Pearl Harbor have Americans had to memorialize a loss of such suddenness, ferocity, and magnitude. Today, we pay tribute to those who died even as thousands of survivors gathered to remember at the World Trade Center site in New York's Manhattan the Pentagon in Virginia, and at a lonely field in rural Pennsylvania. At this time, Americans still wonder, what happened on that fateful September morning? My name is Noel Maitland. I work for Ladder Company 15, Lower East Side, New York City. Coming out now. All, right, all units stand by. Ladder 15 and Ladder 15 only. Go ahead with your message. Ladder 15, you have a message? What other unit calling Manhattan? 
My fellow firefighters and I arrived at 10048, the World Trade Center, just as the second tower collapsed. No streets, only caverns of destruction, filled with sections of I-beams, aluminum facade, dust, paper, mud. Buildings surrounding what will become known as Ground Zero are gutted and burning fiercely, with hundreds of broken windows ripped open wide by flying girders. The command system is shattered, and there's a chief yelling orders from atop a rig. Every man seems to be from a different unit. Most lack basic equipment. We start stretching hose lines to control fires in the acres of rubble, past stretchers and breathing masks and forcible entry tools over the girders, just to try and rescue trapped firemen. Later, I find my company, Ladder 15, at a staging area where they've set up chairs outside the shattered windows of an office building's backside. It's eerie. It's like some war zone Israeli cafe. After a few hours of waiting orders, we split up to look for work. I find a large contingent of firefighters and policemen on the south side of Tower 2's remains, snaking a hose line into the rubble's smoky darkness. I search for victims under the wreckage, but well, there's no sign of anyone. From time to time, the smoke lifts little, showing six stories of uncollapsed steel girders and concrete flooring looming overhead. I keep searching, making mental notes of what girder I'll duck under if the rest of the building gives way. Men shout for relief at the end of the hose line, and I follow the line into the intense heat and choking smoke. About a half hour later, I reach the end and offer to take the nozzle, but the nozzleman refuses. I ain't going anywhere till O'Malley comes back, he yells. Now, by tradition, a company keeps the nozzle until the fire is out and firefighters from the house are safe. I, uh, I help feed in hose and start back to get some tools. Suddenly I feel sick and dehydrated and hundreds of hands steady me as I clamber over rubble and down ladders that the brothers have laid across the steepest section. In the triage center in the firehouse across the street, oh, the nurse. She seems like an angel with IVs. Before I fall asleep, I start thinking back on that afternoon when firefighters and construction workers fired up earth-moving equipment, started clearing the street. And O'Malley never returned. In the days following September 11th, many have asked, where was God? God still tolerates evil and will someday show His judgment. Meanwhile, He will show His mercy to America in ways many will not realize. 50,000 people work at the Trade Center. On that Tuesday, 2,800 were killed. That means 94% escaped. 23,000 people work at the Pentagon. Of those, 123 lost their lives. That's a survival rate of 99.5%. American Airlines Flight 77 that hit the Pentagon had the capacity of 289 passengers. But on that Tuesday, only 64 were on board. 78% of the seats were empty. American Airlines Flight 11 that hit one of the World Trade Center towers had a capacity of 351 passengers. That morning it carried only 92. That means 74% of the seats were empty. United Airlines Flight 175, which hit the second World Trade Center tower, had a capacity of 351 passengers, but only 65 were on board. The plane was 81% empty. United Airlines Flight 93, bound for San Francisco, could carry 289 passengers. When it crashed in rural Pennsylvania, only 45 were on board. Flight 93 was 84% empty. On Tuesday, September 11th, Nearly 75,000 Americans were potential victims of Islamic terrorism. More than 95% survived. 
survived. As we remember the terrible events of September 11th, let's not forget to give thanks to God for His mercy shown to America in a tragedy which could have been far more severe. The Bible tells us we must, in everything, give thanks, for what was prevented was by His mercy. When a sparrow falls, when a baby cries, when a child is lost, when a loved one dies, God is there watching. God is there watching. When the innocent pay and the guilty go free, and there's a cry for justice, but none to be seen. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. God is there watching. When freedom choice is the rule of the day. We know firsthand that nothing can replace the loss that was felt yesterday. And that only time and love and prayers can begin to heal the wounds. When a nation falls down on its knees, cries for mercy, prays for peace. God is there watching. God is there watching. Oh, God is there watching. Please, God, look down on America, look down on New York, look down on Washington. We ask your blessing be upon the President of the United States, the leaders of the Congress, and all of the members. When Satan comes to spread his lies and lobbies hard for compromise, we cannot explain what's happened. We don't have that capacity. Then how can we console those who've suffered so much through the loss of friends and loved ones? Yes, our hearts go out to them, but it's not enough for them or for us. Tonight, let us open our hearts so that Almighty God may dwell within us so that our actions are His actions. And let us believe in Him so that our dismay is replaced by His strength. Hello, I'm Franklin Graham. The events of September the 11th will go down in the history of this nation as maybe one of the most tragic events in all time. And we think of the loss of life, not only in New York and in Washington, but on the aircraft. Our hearts are saddened. Uh, we cannot help but to be angry that this happened to this nation of ours. But I hope, and really my prayer, is that the events of September 11th won't be a, a root of bitterness in the soul of America. But it's my prayer that this nation will once again turn its eyes toward God that we will put our faith and trust in Him and in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who came out of heaven to this earth 2,000 years ago to die for our sins. And we know that if we confess our sins and repent and turn to God in faith, receiving Christ into our hearts and to our lives, God will forgive us and cleanse us of our sin. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. There's no other way that we can have that assurance of going to heaven. There's no way we can have that assurance of our sins being forgiven unless we come to God through Jesus Christ, His Son. And it's my prayer that this nation will once again turn its face to the living God, that we will confess our sins as a nation, that we will repent, and once again we will follow Him. We have a great history, but in the recent years we have turned our back on God. We have taken God out of our schools. We've taken Him out of our government. Different organizations are quick to sue Anytime you mention the name of Jesus Christ or you offer a public prayer. And as a result, we have taken God out of all of our public life. We need to put God back in. We need His laws governing this land. Our money, our coins, say in God we trust. But in fact, in the last 50 years, we put our faith and trust in our economics. We put our faith and trust in our 401ks, our stock portfolios. This nation needs God. We need His help. We need His leadership. And we need to trust Him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for this nation. And we pray that the tragic events of September 11th will go down in history as the time that America turned its eyes back to God and once again followed the God of its forefathers. And so, Father, we confess our sins to You. We ask You for forgiveness. And, Father, we believe that Jesus Christ is your Son, who died on Calvary's cross for our sins. And, Father, today we pray for our President. We pray for all of our leadership that are elected, that are appointed. And, Father, we pray that you will guide them, that you will direct them and lead them. And, Father, we pray for all Americans around the world, that they will be safe. And, Father, we pray for the Church of Jesus Christ around the world, that they will be bold and that they will proclaim your name and lift up the name of thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the freedoms you have given to us. We thank you for the privilege of living in this great nation. And Father, we pray for this nation, we pray for its people, and we pray in the name of thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You're listening to 10048. After the Fall, a Celebration of Hope, a Lifeline Special Report. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.